This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada. eBay Canada has been supporting Canadian small business retailers for 25 years. With their up-and-running program, you can access eBay's 180-plus million buyers in 190 countries around the world. With up-and-running, there are no listing fees on up to 200 listings per month, and you only pay fees when you sell. As part of the eBay community, you get real-time advice and inspiration and access to powerful selling tools and insights. Go to ebay.ca forward slash up and running, stay local, and sell global. Welcome to Canada's podcast, the number one podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. So, Mark, welcome to Canada's podcast. It's great to see you. Um, uh, as I normally do, and it's always really interesting to tell us, you know, give us, give us that three to five minute history uh, of who, who Mark is and, you know, uh, and, and what you're doing today, basically. And then we'll move, move into some of the other uh, questions. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Philip. Pleasure to be here on a fine Friday, fall morning. I'm originally from born and raised in cottage country on a lake up north in Halliburton. So this okay. is uh, one of our favorite times of year. Well, I'm born and raised in Scotland, so this is like summertime, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having lived there once upon a time, I remember the parks would be 17 degrees and sunny, and you'd have everyone having the little barbecues and shirts off in the parks there. So Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so I've been a passionate uh, around as far as innovating strategy and distribution when it comes to all things financial services my entire career for the last 20 years. Um, since leaving business school in uh, 1999. And, you know, I, you know I, in early days of my youth, I was a young front office banker building out distribution for a company that uh, was called ING Direct, now Tangerine. And yeah. that exposed me uh, to the broader ecosystem when it came to all things fintech and financial services. And that was actually be- before fintech was even coined fintech. Um, but that's where I really grew my passion for, you know, innovating mm-hmm. platforms, product, uh, distribution strategy that was focused on customers. Uh, and, and since then, I've, you know, crossed over and worked at big carriers and then uh, in the property casualty space, um, developing, you know, distribution product, uh, et cetera. And then I was, I was able to basically connect and meet with uh, you know, my leadership team at Fox School, while we were growing and scaling out, maybe our, our most proud Canadian fintech growth story, a company called Real Matters, is based out here in Toronto mm-hmm. from about 2011 to, toward an IPO, 2017. And what we, you know, I was responsible for the insurance vertical within that organization. Okay. And what we were able to witness, bear witness to, was basically the first, you know, uh, generation, that first wave of insurtechs globally, which primarily focused on digitization of insurance, top line plays, mm-hmm. um, you know, shiny objects around narrow focus around programs, et cetera. And usually based on, you know, digitization of online, uh, richer user experience, UX, et cetera, uh, usually founded by um, other technology, you know, technology founders that had strong exits in other realms that were learning insurance on the go. So, and we watched that first wave and uh, our team uh, had its own problem within our you know, tech company, within the platform that hosted like and kind small businesses, about 200,000 across North America. And the last piece of their onboarding was you know, showcasing their insurance and have a fully right policy that met our requirements. But they never ever, never ever did. And so they'd have to walk back to a legacy broker network 
And if we saw them at all, it'd be a couple months later. So it was a real challenging problem or onboarding process. So we called out to the marketplace to solve the, uh, the problem and asked them simply, can you not integrate insurance to our platform? And more importantly, customize and cascade a you know, powerful uh, affinity offering to our like and kind network. A very big multi-million dollar opportunity, uh, but we never got a response back. And I and wasn't naive to that. I didn't expect to have a response back from these big alpha houses or carriers in the marketplace. So that was a light bulb moment when my partner and I say, hey, why can not we basically go build the architecture and technology to adjoin like and kind small business owners and put them in front uh, with purchasing power at every pillar of the life cycle of their policy? Uh, that was the bottom line underlying premise. So, you know, we, we knew that we'd have roadblocks and barriers and challenges, you know, founding the company here in Toronto, Canada, because uh, you got to go about a little bit longer to do your alphas and betas and, and uh, have that measured success story uh, on your way to basically raising capital uh, whilst you're focused on building your architecture and attracting talent to uh, mm-hmm. align to your vision, your vision of business model. You've had a busy few years, but I mean, you know, I looked at your background, you know, why didn't you do it you know, within, you know, Tangerine or Aviva or, you know, you, you, you've worked for some great companies, you know, why do it on your own? Why become an entrepreneur? Why, why take that risk? Because it's there, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, uh, that's, that's always should be the first question like, that should offer a curiosity. Why, why do people come, become entrepreneurs more specifically? Why did yeah, I? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I have to applaud all the great leaders that I worked with and for. Uh, they gave me the, you know, the education and know-how and the relationships to found this company, Foxwell. Without, without some of those mentors, Foxwell doesn't exist. But my passion for entrepreneurship started at a very young age. You know, I was born, in, born into a family of entrepreneurs. My great-grandfather and my, great, and my grandfather um, you know, built and founded the, what would become the largest subterrane uh, diamond drilling contracting company in Canada. Oh, and then wow. an offshoot of a conglomerate of, you know, manufacturing and distribution companies and, and, mm-hmm. and others. And so that family brand still exists under, you know, Morset Diamond Drilling. But I learned, you know, business and entrepreneurship and the values of basically how it starts and ends with people, how to mm-hmm. treat them uh, with values of integrity, uh, right. respect, curiosity, uh, every morning at the breakfast table and the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, what I was always taught was basically go pursue what you're passionate about. And when you have that passion and you've got a great idea or vision, then uh, essentially build a team around it that can align to that common purpose and vision. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought that I would be able to start this entrepreneur. I'm, you know, I look a lot younger than I am. I'm a you know, middle-aged guy with four kids. So this journey I would have loved to have started in, when I was 25. It's about timing and an idea and having people around you to basically uh, grow your uh, and align to your vision, but grow the business. I started my first company, ironically, when I was in business school, when I was 21. My partner and I, within that business, we, we, uh, we basically subcontracted CN rail cars and we're shipping vehicles across North America together. <laughs> he, he was, you know, I had a small minority share in that company yeah. and, and uh, I had about two years left of business school. So I sold my shares thinking, hey, you know what, I'm going to go basically do this uh, all on my own right eventually when I have my own passion for what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, 
my buddy since then has become a you know, multi-million dollar uh, logistics <laughs> entrepreneur. Uh, so I missed that. <laughs> so I didn't piggyback him all the way, but with the naivety, because you're young and full of you know vinegar, yeah. like, I think like five years later, you're going to find that basic purpose. And sometimes it comes a little later. And then you're anchored into, you talk about risk, you're anchored into mortgage, cottage, family. Then it takes a little, it becomes a little bit harder to assume that. It is tough once you get into that, into that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, Because you've got to be, this is not something where it's, you you know, these businesses are not something uh, that you can basically sit on a side hustle or do on the side. You've got to be all in and fully committed. And then, you you know, everyone around you, you you're, my wife and my extended family, they, they known since I was a teenager that had wanted to be an entrepreneur. It's always been my, one of my, uh, you know, purposes of, as far as I love business, mm-hmm. I love, uh, you know, the people around uh, making a, ensuring a successful business and growth story. Um, and it's all about leadership and assembly and all those different stakeholders and people. So, you know, this is probably, we're having the most fun. My partner, Krim Jamal and I are, having so much fun right now. We're going to year five of this business box quilt, but um, that's, a good, late good, never. that's a good year to be talking about. You know, when, when, if you're still talking about it year five, I think that's a, that's a good sign basically. Um, well, for you, I mean, I th- you know, you brought up your family when you were working. I mean, you explained a little bit, but I just want to kind of just focus on it. for you. What's the best thing about being an entrepreneur versus being, you know, a successful, you, you know, employee, basically. Yeah, so w- w- I always start men with people when you're attracting talent and you get that, you get basically now to forge the blueprint of all your intellectual capital mm-hmm. to say, okay, this is the vision. And I, I'm more of a the longer term vision guy. I like to paint and create that blueprint mm-hmm. of where I think the customer uh, and the market is going. And then allowing you to basically paint that canvas of creating the, you know, the architecture, but more importantly, the people around it that are mm-hmm. going to be focused mm-hmm. on um, basically painting that canvas and bringing them together uh, at the start of the journey, but allowing and affording this living, breathing culture to have its genesis from day one. And so I've been great, had good fortune. I've worked at some prolific companies under some great leaders and you get to learn and you get to basically steal and poach what you think are the best practices from those various cultures and what you believe wholeheartedly uh, should be ingrained in what you're creating and within your baby um, uh, should be the, you know, the impetus of, you know, that living, breathing culture that uh, you want your people to foster. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, Krim and I um, we're, we're capitalists at the end of the day. And we have, you know, we have big ambitions to create not just a hundred million dollar company, but a billion dollar company that's trading in global markets. Mm. Um, yeah, we, and we want to have a large return for our shareholders, but we want to basically celebrate, uh, you know, those young people that are affording us to build this company in the journey, mm-hmm. to really teach and enlighten and educate and 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 make a difference in their careers, and then at the end of the day, surprise them with. Uh, with stock op- stock options that are going to basically, you know, pay for a good chunk of their mortgage or change their families uh, 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 differently. We want them to basically wake up in the morning and leave work at the end of the day thinking this is the best place I've ever worked. Uh, so it's really about, I get passionate when I think about the people and the culture. So, you know, we were talking a little earlier, uh, you know, and I was sort of 
saying that you know I didn't interview you know Danish and and, and Andrew, a, a couple of other fintech guys. Um, you know, what do you think is the? I mean, you, you the future of uh, let's just stick with the insurance fintech side of it because it's a big category. What's the future? What's the global vision, if you like, or at least the Canadian vision of the insurance fintech side of it that you that you're the third that you guys are, are pushing out there kind of thing? Yeah, we love our peer group. We're, uh, we, we're, you know, we're close in touch and become good friends. Uh, Donner says insurance. I was on a panel with uh, the Policy Me fellows as well. So it's, uh, we, we celebrate and have a lot of pride in their success because with their success comes our success. Yeah, sure. Peer. Of course. Um, so it's a, it's a great uh, fraternity. I'm proud Canadian, born and raised. But Canada, we suffer sometimes from our, you know, our own basically systemic cultural, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're proud to be Canadian, which means we're usually a bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. And, but, uh, you know, Canada is, as I say to some of our, you know, our biggest stakeholders are outside of our borders in Canada. We are a dynamic trading place and marketplace. We're the 10th largest GDP in the world, but more importantly, we have an amazing people, rich academia and capabilities right here in our hometown of Toronto, Waterloo is a vibrant ecosystem. Absolutely is, yeah. Data scientists and engineers and developers and strategists and marketers. And, you know, the rest of the world has figured that out. Uh, and basically, and we've uh, <laughs> taken great pride from the company that we just, you know, came from that IPO in 2017. Doesn't just happen by mistake that was basically built and scaled by Canadians. So Canadians build dynamic platforms, trading platforms and technology. And then uh, we embrace other international stakeholders to help us basically scale those offerings. What's happening is that it's up to leaders like, you know, myself and Donish and others to open up, uh, you know, our people and our culture and our, and our marketplace uh, to the rest of the world and basically say like, hey, this is not about the old way where we're basically going to, you know, use foreign money to scale this growth and business model. And then basically, you know, exit to a foreign entity. It doesn't always have to be that way. Um, why can we not we be leaders? Why can't we be number one in our it vision? It does happen our, way, way too much in the, in the, you know, the Canadian raise is, is so hard com- compared to, the, you know, the international raise kind of thing. Absolutely. And when we, you know, our team, you know, looked at the first wave of InsurTech 2010 to 17, that's what we said. We said, you know, most of these, most of these base, the, the innovation is lacking and underserves basically the, you know, the customer first, as far as ingenuity and engineering product and solutions for customer. More importantly, the, uh, you know, the full end-to-end full service underwriting platform wasn't there. It was mostly top line customer acquisition models that were done by technology founders that had strong tethers and relationships to capital that had strong exits in other realms. And that's what our, that's where we said in 2016, we said, okay, it is now time for Canadian insurance technology innovators to get in the game and not just focus on shiny, narrow program objects that, you know, venture capital was following, but basically entrust our own instincts to focus on models around profitability, but architecture that was focused on profitability. So with our own self-funding and a little bit of venture capital, we focused on the back-end architecture and the machine that would become a full-service, eventually modern carrier uh, when we, you know, garnered support with some international stakeholders. So 
you know, what we had to do was basically you got to get out of your comfort, uh, comfort zone in your own bubble and you go out, you go get it. You don't wait for the phone to ring or the door to be knocked on. And we left very, very early in the ideation stage in 2016 and we courted the big reinsurance companies. Uh, and we just said, hey, this is the uh, Toronto leadership team. That's this is our vision. And we're focused on building a full stack underwriting platform that's going to essentially create a backend machine and focused on the same uh, architecture and microservices architecture that e-commerce retailers like Walmarts and others are mm-hmm. building. And we're going to build the, uh, you know, a distribution company that's focused customer first so that they're empowered with when it comes to, um, you know, term, treaty, product, tailor-made offerings. They're in front of it first and allow the machine to basically, you know, pre-underwrite and score then offer those benefits uh, an extension of um, self-service features to the customers. So it's a, it's a little bit harder, obviously, to do that in Toronto, Canada, because it takes capital. And you've got to, it takes probably twice as long because everything's, uh, you know, based on conservative measured success. Sure. But uh, we, we are, we, we take a different vantage points in the sense that we are aggressive and ambitious and we do not wait for anything. This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada. eBay Canada is powering Canadian small businesses. Go to ebay.ca forward slash up and running to open your new global e-commerce business. We're faced with challenges every day as entrepreneurs, and I'm more interested in, you know, when you're faced with those challenges, especially the ones that you didn't see coming, mm-hmm. okay, how do you typically handle them? Have you, I mean, have you kind of developed a, a methodology around them, or is it like, holy shit, each time? I, d- I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we're, I'm not a patient guy by nature. And let's unpeel that a bit. So I grew up in a uh, very competitive sports household. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, I've got a twin brother and you know, three brothers. And I moved away from home very, at a young age to pursue hockey. Uh, yeah. I was 15 years old. But we pursue excellence in everything we did in that household. So whether it's, uh, and, and you're always curious whether, you're, you know, we played the, we, my brother and I played the baritone in the concert band, and then we acted in plays and drama. We're curious you know, always looking to seek new relationships, but we always wanted to win. So there's nothing wrong in Canada by teaching young Canadians that, hey, you want to celebrate this new culture that based rewards and there's a sense of uh, within that culture of kindness, fairness, equity, all that, all that good, rich stuff holistically within your culture um, while, you're, while you're innovating with curiosity and uh, other uh, successful values to innovate, but you need to win. You've got to strive for first place and excellence. And when you have those, you know, natural instincts within your bones, in Canada, you have to learn to be a bit patient. So I've come, you know, you come across all these barriers and roadblocks within InsureTech in Canada because coast to coast, most of our property casualty industry is made up of, uh, of carriers that are satellites that pay a dividend to a foreign parent. Mm-hmm. And most of them are really anchored in, you know, re- slow moving cruise ships that are retiring legacy systems focused on retaining market share and the decision makers aren't here. So they're, you know, they're not really coming through our office fig- trying to figure out what the hell these guys are doing. It's been four years. <laughs> um, so, you know, and they put up, they, you know, and they put up a lot of rare bears and roadblocks because they don't open up their businesses to let you afford to innovate. 
right? So we couldn't wait for that. So we had to go elsewhere outside of our borders, not be naive to look for those different partners that were going to allow us to basically have capacity, underwriting authority, um, baking in dynamic, sophisticated data sciences within our platform as around underwriting logic. You're, what you're saying to me, I think, is when faced with unexpected challenges, successful entrepreneurs handle them with innovation. The best things can ever happen to an entrepreneur are the most frustrating barriers or blocks because that allows your smarter, intelligent team to sit down and focus on solution. So, you know, some of those solutions are, are, are obviously the business, whether it be technology, but just as important as the customer. Think about it. Insurance has always been the lagging financial instrument when it comes to fintech and financial services for lots of different reasons that would take us a few podcasts to, to discuss over. A few, yeah. Well, like I said, I grew up in, 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 in a banking and insurance city. So, yeah, yeah in, I, I know what you're saying. Before the liquidity crisis, they prided themselves in not investing in their capabilities. So, uh, meaning technology and people and everything else. So, they've been playing catch up. So, what happens is that, you know, the first, we're, we listened to the customer first four years ago. And, you know, that frustration within the broader customer going, why are these carriers dictating terms and product towards us? And it's not transparent. I don't know what I'm paying for. And so we listen to the customer and say, okay, well, we're going to help you innovate solutions to, to fix that frustration. We want that small business owner to access product 24-7 within an omni-channel. But more importantly, we don't want a one-size-fits-all product for you. We'll build tailor-made yeah. offers for you. So the, the obstacles and problems that you faced, as frustrating as they are, and they're harder to solve here in Canada still, because we don't have a lot of power and authority as startups, they are probably the best enlightening moments to basically figure out a solution within your value chain. Okay. So in terms of the, the challenge side of it, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You said you had some great mentors through your career. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received that you keep using, that you keep falling back on? Yeah, so I mean, um, you're going to get tired of me saying the word people, but I reiterate and regurgitate the best advice I've ever had from my, you know, big Fortune 500 mentors or, mm -hmm, my, mm -hmm. or my family of entrepreneurs, et cetera, is surround yourself with basically a diversity of different people. Do not, you know, have this kind of this monoline, you know, uh, of like and kind people, but surround yourself with as many, many, many network of different people that embrace your curiosity for asking questions, for learning, for always keeping an open mind, age of reason, critical thinking. It's, uh, you, know, we, you know, not to get into politics and you see this kind of isolationism set in in the rest of the, the global framework, but that, that, you know, that dogma doesn't do good for anybody. So no. you've got to reach out and extend yeah. uh, yourself and your curiosity and your way of thinking to as many different people as possible because you never know within your own life's journey or your business journey or whatever journey that it's on that different people can really uh, be of service, but more importantly, where you can be of service to them as well. And you know, when, we, when we're building this company, back to the, the business, it really, really, it's not cliche. It's, not, uh, it, it's about people. And when you're attracting top talent early days, when you don't have a lot of money, You've got to attract the best in-class folks to build your technology, to build out your distribution ops, 
And how you do that, it's a long, it's, it starts early. It's a tough road. It's a tough Not, road. You cannot, nothing can be reactionary here in Toronto, Canada. Yeah. You've got to start those courtships two years in advance and say, hey, I know that you're the top salesperson, young, young, young person, girl or guy at that company, but watch what we're doing. Be, watch what we're doing over the course of the next 12 months because I'm going to come back to you in 14 months and you're going to come and join our cause. Yeah. And, and then when That's the good. people join us, it's just like a water tap that turns on. It starts as a drip and then the flow gets uh, a little bit heavier because they, they invite other rich talent to, to join the, uh, so, the mission. So let's move on to my rapid fire section of questions, you know, just sure. quick Q&As kind of thing. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing instead? Oh, that's, yeah, that is a great question. So you always have to have a dream, right? So when I, when I was young, uh, my brothers and I, we, were, we dreamt and we, we put in more than 10,000 hours. So we put in 20,000 hours to be professional hockey players. Uh, that dream did not realize, and I extinguished it as early as I possibly could uh, so that you're not basically, you know, crying in your hands at 18. Right. Move yeah. on and create a new dream. When we look for talent, we look for curiosity and what's your dream in five years. We don't want just folks to join us basically to punch in, punch out. And we want, we want to actually like, help their dreams come But, what, to- but what's, your, what's your dream? What would you do? Yeah, so, you know, altruistically – this business is going to be fine, right? And if I wasn't building Foxquilt, it would be uh, helping others. And I've got a competitive sense of nature. I'm a need to be busy and all that stuff. I can't be going back to cottage country where we're raised on a lake and, yeah. and put my feet up. Yeah. That's not my dream. But um, you know, when this, you know, this is not. We have no grandiose dreams to basically be in this for 15 years toward an IPO and another. That's not satisfying ego. We, uh, you know, there'll be a time and place to basically create a new dream. And that's basically, we want to help um, broaden altruistically the, the fintech ecosystem uh, where we can open up some of our companies to different global trading partners. My wife and I, you know, she's a business executive as well. So I, I think that we're already starting plans on how we can um, use our abilities uh, and skills to help the next basically wave of entrepreneurs after this is said and done. I'd be uh, I'd be a teacher if I wasn't basically teacher. Okay, all right, that's a good yeah. thing to be. That's a good thing to be. So what are you what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading. So I always have entrepreneurial stories that we read at the at the bedside table, and so you know some of that stuff is traditional stuff like the you know shoe dog and the Nike story and Jeff Bezos' book. But I'm on this kick of basically the, uh, theology as well. So it's like uh, you, you come to a sense in your life where you basically you're looking for something always more meaningful. So I've been digging a little deeper into the spirituality and theology, mm. of some of those books and podcasts. Did you, uh, did you read The Big Nine yet with Amy Webb? No. Tell me more about that. Yeah, you, I'm not going to tell you. You've got to go read it, okay? It's very interesting. Uh, I mean, you might disagree or agree with it, but it's, it's very interesting. She's a pretty good futurist and a good writer. So, And you're in, in the tech business, and I grew up in the tech business. So I like people with vision that, that sort of saying what, what's going to happen. So she's, she's, it's interesting. You know? Yeah, I think, like, I mean, I'm a very open-minded guy, but yeah. always, you know, I've been fortunate and blessed to – have a wife, beautiful wife that's a deep thinker as well. 
Yeah. And so, I'm really interested in it. Makes a big diff. Yeah. It, it does. And uh, so, you know, you're all, you always want to be ahead of your life. Right. Um, you don't want your life to be dragging you forward. So you're, and I think there's a real, when you look at the millennials and the Jad Zeds, and I've got four children and my youngest children, those to follow, there's a real sense of purpose for entrepreneurs that are visionaries to now bridge what those new cultures and those businesses uh, were going to look like in 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the baby boomers that were very successful and those that are successful today, different cultures. When we talk about Jeff Bezos culture, when we talk about, you know, you know um, uh, Apple and some others, uh, Tesla, these are heavily driven cultures that not necessarily resonate with Gen Zs and those to follow. So I think there's, there's a better way to allow young people to innovate and be those entrepreneurs within your company that fosters a culture of balance. Are you a morning or a night person? Well, I'm a morning person. Uh, You belong to the 80% of of the entrepreneurs I interview. I, I think 80% of us are, have to get up, you know what I mean? The brain starts uh, going, going off at 4.30, I've got to get up. It is, uh, you know, if I was a writer, I'd probably be like waking up in the middle of the, middle of the night to, to put my, jot down my best notes. But uh, yeah, I'm one of those guys, I need an adrenaline rush the first thing in the morning, I want to get up at five or six and then um, do my best, to, you know, the guys around me know that I can't sit still for 10 minutes. So I do my best thinking between you know, seven and 11, Yep. And after that, I you know my brain's not that great. I totally agree. That's that's right. What, what what's keeping you up at night these days? Uh, like you know, most most people respond obviously to the to the climate and the environment that we see ourselves in. Obviously, I've got a family of four young kids. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you always are thinking like how to protect uh, children to you know to insulate basically them from this pandemic that we're in. So you want to have them flourish. Uh, not, you know, be in a sense of fear or paralysis while they're not able to pursue their normal patterns around, you know, sports activities or dance, whatever that, whatever that is. So, you know, I, I think about, and I'm conscious to be, you know, a good dad. Uh, so I want to be, you know, great, be there for my kids, uh, family first. And then for the young people that are building our company, that's who I think about first. I think about the young people that are building the company. It's about them. And, what they're going through. You have to think like these folks are in condos or they're in basement apartments. Um, you don't know what type of mental anxiety or angu- uh, anguish that they're, you know, they're, they're feeling right now. So we are as a team and as myself personally leading the, you know, the team, thinking about how do we best um, keep them safe, but mentally healthy through this next uh, two years. Cause it's gonna, it's, it's gonna take a couple years. If you had to describe one yourself in one word, what would it be, and why would you choose that word? Uh, I, I would hope I would I would choose the word kind, but uh, I, w- I would hope that uh, you know I, I don't want it to <laughs> like my great grandfather grandfather would just have a little basically stone in the ground and there for their burial for their burial uh, in their cemetery, and if I just had the little wee plaque on the ground, that's all I want, and it would just say uh, kind person. Because I, I think that uh, kindness and it's funny, we, uh, we do our strategic vision, mission, values every year. One of the words that we added to our values that we added was kindness this, uh, cool. That's this year. Great. What's your favorite place in the world? You grew up in cottage country. Is that, is that it? 
It is like, I mean, you're, you're a proud Scotsman Edinburgh uh, and it's something like, you know, we, my brothers and I, before we, you know, like a lot of kids, you pursue education, you have to leave. It used to be a logging and tourism town. Uh, all the lodges are, are gone. There's only, I think, one heritage lodge out of the 17, our main body of water in Halliburton left. But before we even bought our first family homes, we bought a, uh, just a shack together in the east side of Halliburton just to have access to water. So mm-hmm. I need to be around water. It's, uh, you know, it's unfortunately, I, I chose maybe the most landlocked town to raise my family here in Ontario and Aurora. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's just something about it uh, when... When, uh, you know, when I was a kid and we were growing up on, you know, rivers and lakes in the bush, you don't, you, like, there's no pursuit. I will have, be driving the same truck that I drive today, 10 years from now. Home is about a family home. I bought this home in 2008 or seven. I'll be living in this home 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, there's nothing that I've ever wanted. I've never been a, a guy that pursues material possessions. I hate that stuff. I was happiest as a kid running barefoot along the riverside in, in uh, Halliburton. And uh, so my brothers and I, that's where we congregate as a family. So it's uh, we don't even go to our, my parents' beautiful family home up there. We go to these little shacks around the, you know, these lakes. So I, I usually ask people this tropical island question, you know, but I've decided today I'm going to ask the COVID version of it. So you're isolated, you're, you know, you're on a small island let's say Eagle Lake or something like that. We drop you off there, no technology. You do have a phone, but it's only got one connection, mm-hmm. and that's to us. Uh, and we can come and pick you up anytime you want. How long do you last? Oh, my wife would say you wouldn't last a minute because uh, <laughs> you know, my mouth doesn't stop going. Like, I have this irritating habit of singing out loud and songs like I need to be around people. So it's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't last it 20 minutes. Yeah, me too. Me too. That, 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 that's really, really good, Mark. Okay, well, that's about it for today. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. It's a, a really, real, real good uh, interaction. Some good feedback for, for people that, that are looking for ideas and, uh, and understanding. And, and in terms of the people that are doing that, how can they, if they have something that they really want to talk to you about, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I try to connect and uh, um, return email and, and phone call to help as many young people uh, that are you know pursuing these different initiatives or just yeah. interested and curious um, uh, at all. So they can reach me at marketfoxwell.com. Okay. And uh, I'm always uh, open to help and you know listen to sure. any of your audience members want to ask questions. Yeah. Okay, Mark. Well, thanks very much for coming on the Canada's podcast. It's been a delight having you on the show. Thanks so much, Philip. Have a great weekend. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada. eBay Canada is here to help. They've been supporting Canadian small business retailers for 25 years, and their up and running program is getting Canadian businesses online today. Visit ebay.ca forward slash up and running. Stay local and sell global with eBay.